This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. If you're new here, let me tell you what this podcast is all about. This podcast is an exploration of logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoicism, and life pro tips. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Thinking and Doing. For this episode, we're going to look at confirmation bias. I've got two chapters from The Art of Thinking Clearly by Rolf DeBelli on confirmation bias, so I thought we would just look at both chapters instead of two separate cognitive biases. Confirmation bias is probably one of the more popular biases, probably one of the more well-known, but probably also one of the, one of the more uh, commonly um, fallen for, I guess we could say. Um, so it's something I've been aware of for a while, and it's certainly something I think I've been, I've fallen for or been victim of. That's the right word. Um, anyway, so we're going to look at chapter seven and eight in The Art of Thinking Clearly. All right, here's the chapter seven. It, it's titled, Beware the Special Case, Confirmation Bias Part One. Gil wants to lose weight. He selects a particular diet and checks his progress on the scale every morning. If he's lost weight, he pats himself on the back and considers the diet a success. If he's gained weight, he writes it off as a normal fluctuation and forgets about it. For months, he lives under the illusion that the diet is working, even though his weight remains constant. Gill is a victim of the confirmation bias, albeit a harmless form of it. The confirmation bias is the mother of all misconceptions. It is the tendency to interpret new information so that it becomes compatible with our existing theories, beliefs, and convictions. In other words, we filter out any new information that contradicts our existing views. This is a dangerous practice. Facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored, said writer Aldous Huxley. However, we do exactly that. As super investor Warren Buffett knows, quote, what the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that, so that their prior conclusions remain intact. That is certainly the truth. The confirmation bias is alive and well in the business world. One example, an executive team decides on a new strategy. The team enthusiastically celebrates any sign that the strategy is a success. Everywhere the executives look, they see plenty of confirming evidence, while indications to the contrary remain unseen or are quickly dismissed as exceptions or special cases. They have become blind to disconfirming evidence. What can you do? If the word exception crops up, prick up your ears. Often it hides the presence of disconfirming evidence. It pays to listen to Charles Darwin. Since his youth, he set out to fight the confirmation bias systematically. Whenever observations indicated his theory or excuse me, whenever observations contradicted his theory, he took them very seriously and noted them down immediately. He knew that the brain actively forgets disconfirming evidence after a short time. The more correct he judged his theory to be, the more actively he looked for contradictions. A following experiment shows how much effort it takes to question your own theory. A professor presented his students with the number sequence 246. They had to calculate the underlying rule that the professor had written on the back of a sheet of paper. 
The students had to provide the next number in the sequence to which the professor would reply fits the rule or does not fit the rule. The students could guess as many numbers as they wanted, but could try only once to identify the rule. Most students suggested 8 as the next number, and the professor replied, fits the rule. To be sure, they tried 10, 12, and 14. The professor replied each time, fits the rule. The students concluded, the rule is to add 2 to the last number. The professor shook his head, that is not the rule. One shrewd student tried a different approach. He tested out the number negative 2. The professor said, does not fit the rule. 7, he asked, fits the rule. The student tried all sorts of numbers, negative 24, 9, negative 43. Apparently, he had an idea and he was trying to find a flaw with it. Only when he could no longer find a counterexample, the student said, the rule is this. The next number must be higher than the previous one. The professor turned over the sheet of paper revealing those very words. What distinguished the resourceful student from the others? While the majority of students sought merely to confirm their theories, he tried to find fault with his, consciously looking for disconfirming evidence. You might think, good for him, but not the end of the world for the others. However, falling for the confirmation bias is not a pretty, is not a petty intellectual offense. How it affects our lives will be revealed in the next chapter. All right, well, before we read the next chapter, let's, let's look at this. I like, um, I like that he brought in Charles Darwin and he brought in that uh, experiment at the end. Because it's not something that, I would say it's not something that we'd like to do. Okay, we want to feel like our ideas, our ideologies, our beliefs, our convictions, our opinions are a soft, warm, comforting blanket that we can wear and will keep us safe. Right? That's that's what we prefer, I think. That's what we prefer. It's um, very difficult the idea to take off the blanket and be exposed to the elements, be exposed to the cold. We want to just get right back under the blanket. We want to stay there. We want to hold it tight. Um, and it, it, of course, it's possible that that blanket remains intact and it remains warm and it continues to do its job. But it's more probable that the blanket will develop very large holes that will start small and get larger until the blanket can no longer keep us warm. And I think the only way to patch those holes is to recognize that our beliefs may not be as uh, as valid as we once thought they were, right? When we acknowledge the holes, as it were, in our beliefs, we can begin to patch them, right? But even after, even after we do that, there's no guarantee that our new beliefs or our new um, mixed and remixed or transformed beliefs don't, won't also start to show holes that we would need to continually patch. So I guess just to continue this metaphor, we can... We can decide to sit down and, and wear the blanket and feel the warmth and risk the holes um, being being created and expanding in the blanket. Or we can actively try to strengthen the, the blanket by going after and going out there and looking for uh, disconfirming evidence, as it says, right? Looking for contradictions, really 
trying to pull the blanket apart, try to create the holes all over the blanket, right? So that we can be sure that, you know, because if we grab a spot and we, we pull and it tears easily, then we know that that hole was going to bother us at some point. Okay, I don't know how useful that metaphor is, but just kind of just kind of formed in my mind as I was going there. Uh, seems pretty useful, but it's not. We want to just sit there and be comfortable and feel the warmth, right? What we don't want to do is try to destroy our blanket. We don't want to actively try to destroy our blanket because our blanket serves us well for for a time. For right now, our blanket is serving us really well. We don't want to try to to rend it and rip it and tear it. Um, typically, right? Okay, let's. Uh, I guess with that in mind, let's let's go into this next chapter. <laughs> Interesting. It's titled "Murder Your Darlings: Confirmation Bias Part 2. Murder your blanket. <laughs> all right, here we go. In the previous chapter, we met the father of all fallacies, the confirmation bias. Here are a few examples of it. We are forced to establish beliefs about the world, our lives, the economy, investments, our careers, and more. We deal mostly in assumptions, and the more nebulous these are, the stronger the confirmation bias. Whether you go through life believing that people are inherently good or people are inherently bad, you will find daily proof to support your case. Both parties, the philanthropists and the misanthropes, simply filter disconfirming evidence or evidence to the contrary and focus on the do-gooders and dictators who support their worldviews. Astrologers and economists operate on the same principle. They utter prophecies so vague that any event can substantiate them. In the coming weeks, you'll experience sadness, or in the medium term, the pressure on the dollar will increase. But what is the medium term? What will cause the dollar to depreciate? And depreciation measured against what? Gold, yen, pesos, wheat, residential property in Manhattan, the average price of a hot dog? Religious and philosophical beliefs represent an excellent breeding ground for the confirmation bias. Here, in soft, spongy terrain, it grows wild and free. For example, worshippers always find evidence for God's existence, even though he never shows himself overtly except to illiterates in the desert and in isolated mountain villages. It is never to the masses in, say, Frankfurt or New York. Counter-arguments are dismissed by the faithful, demonstrating just how powerful the confirmation bias is. No professionals suffer more from the confirmation bias than business journalists. Often they formulate an easy theory, pat it out with two or three pieces of evidence, and call it a day. For example, Google is so successful because the company nurtures a culture of creativity. Once this idea is on paper, the journalist corroborates it by mentioning a few other prosperous companies that foster ingenuity. Rarely does the writer seek out disconfirming evidence, which in this instance would be struggling businesses that live and breathe creativity, or conversely, flourishing firms that are utterly uncreative. Both groups have plenty of members, but the journalist simply ignores them. If he or she were to mention just one, the story would be ruined. Self-help and get-rich-quick books are further examples of blinkered storytelling. Their shrewd authors collect piles of proof to pump up the most banal of theories, such as meditation is the key to happiness. Any reader seeking disconfirming evidence does so in vain. Nowhere in these books do we see people who led fulfilled lives without meditation or those who, despite meditation, are still sad. The internet is particularly fertile ground for the confirmation bias. To stay informed, we browse new sites and blogs, forgetting that our favored pages mirror our existing views be they liberal, conservative, or somewhere in between. Moreover, a lot of sites now tailor content to personal interests and browsing history, causing new and divergent opinions to vanish from the radar altogether. We inevitably land in communities of like-minded people, further reinforcing our convictions and the confirmation bias. 
Literary critic Arthur Quiller Couch had a memorable motto, quote, murder your darlings. This was his advice to writers who struggled with cutting cherished but redundant sentences. Quiller Couch's appeal is not just for hesitant hacks, but for all of us who suffer from the deafening silence of assent. To fight against the confirmation bias, try writing down your beliefs, whether in terms of worldview, investments, marriage, healthcare, diet, career strategies, and set out to find disconfirming evidence. Axing beliefs that feel like old friends is hard work, but imperative. All right, that's the end of that. Um, and that's what I said. I, he says, axing beliefs that feel like old friends is hard work, but it's imperative. Trying to rip holes in your warm blanket of belief is, it's not only hard work, it can be extremely uncomfortable, right? We are, we feel better, okay? Whatever feel good hormones or chemicals surge through our minds, through our brains, through our bodies, when we, um, when we are resting in our beliefs, to take those away can be painful. It can be, um, very discomforting. It can, it can create a very strong, uh, feeling of uneasiness. And nobody, nobody likes that, right? Nobody wants that. But like he says, it's imperative. If I don't know how imperative it is, I guess it really depends on what particular blanket. I mean, it's probably more, it's probably more imperative in, say, your career or the business world where holding on to untested and poor beliefs could could lead to serious financial ruin right there's probably a stronger imperative to uh murder your darlings as it were than than in other areas i mean if you've got you know not a very deep mostly superficial belief in something religious you know it's it it probably or it may not uh, have much of a, have much of an effect, a negative effect in your life when, when, uh, count, uh, counter evidence is staring you in the face. It may not be a terrible thing to, to come face to face with that. Um, I don't know. I don't, you know, this, this is something and, and they list in, in both chapters I just read, there were short lists of areas where, um, worldview or beliefs can matter. It says, uh, um, investments, marriage, healthcare, diet, career strategies, things like that. Parenting. I mean, when I, when I started out as a parent, I have three children right now. They're five, uh, they're five, 10, 14 in a couple of months. They're all going to, they're all going to change up. <laughs> they're all, they're, they're, their birthdays are in a three week period in a, in a couple of months. <laughs> so they're all going to be, uh, six, 11, 15. Anyway. And when my first was born, how how I planned on parenting him and how I did parent for the first five years of his life was how I was parented. It was authoritarian in nature. It utilized corporate, corporate, corporal discipline, timeouts. It had me losing my cool and yelling and getting angry. And a big part of that was was a warm blanket. Right. Because when, when your button, when your quote unquote buttons are pushed, it feels really good to yell and scream and to, to lose it. Right. In the moment, it feels really good. Okay. But very shortly after, if you're not a total monster, if I may, if I may share my opinion on that sort of behavior, then it does not feel really good. It feels really bad. 
right? So in that case, I was holding tight to this warm blanket and then it was evaporating in my hands rather than staying there. Um, and it, it was after about five years that I, through the direction of a friend, um, came headfirst into some information about parenting that cut right through me. It cut right through everything I believed. But it cut through everything I believed about parenting, but it fit like the last piece of a puzzle in regards to some other beliefs I had, particularly uh, philosophical beliefs about uh, the use of force, the use of aggression. Okay. So in one sense, it was uh, disconfirming evidence, but in another sense, it was uh, compatible with some other beliefs I held. And so I was able to, in a, in a sense, I was able to replace the blanket and things have been much better ever since. That, that blanket, okay, has, has held fast. And, you know, here we are nine, 10 years later, it's still holding. It doesn't have holes in it. Okay. So the blanket I had, <laughs> I'm going to strain this metaphor until there's no more. The blanket I had was, was totally weak and totally thin and, it seemed like it warned me, but in the end it didn't. And I was able to replace it pretty much entirely with, you know, a, a new and better blanket that still holds true to this day, right? I don't really have to worry about this particular blanket, okay? Because it's it's something that has been, um, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't say I, I don't have to worry about it, the parenting blanket, as it were, because I'm still I'm still in the middle of it, right? I don't think how this particular blanket is, is built. I don't think that there's uh, anything structurally unsound about it. I really don't. Uh, but it is, it does need to grow. Okay. It does need to grow. I do need to add on to it because my, my, you know, I'm just now experiencing the, you know, adolescence with my oldest. I'm going to be teaching him to drive soon. He's going to be going out and getting a job. He's going to become a young adult, then an adult, and I'm going to become a parent of a young adult. So there's still, a lot there for me to experience and learn about. Okay. I'm not, I'm not done in any sense. Anyway. Okay. This, 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 this metaphor went on too long. Um, but that's an example of, you know, of, of a time. And there's been, there's been many other times where I've discovered holes in my blankets and I've had to either patch the holes or completely replace the blanket. And it is, it is hard work. It's not, it's not easy. I don't know. It seems to me like it's probably easier to deal with the holes as they happen than it is to actively go out and try to rip your blanket, <laughs> right? Murdering your darlings. It's probably easier to just wait for, for some of your darlings to get really sick and die, <laughs> and then you can re replace them. Jeez, it's all about the metaphors today. What's going on? All right. I think you get the point. Confirmation bias is sneaky. It's... It's everywhere. It's probably in everything we do. It can affect anything. It can it can be benign, but it can also be it can also lead to total disaster, right? It can lead to financial ruin, it can lead to existential crises, it can lead to I don't know. Is there anything worse than those things in this in this uh, context? Anyway, all right, something to think about. I'll probably be thinking about it the rest of the day. <laughs> all right, thanks so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to thinkinganddoingpodcast at gmail.com. Will you do me a big favor? 
Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. 